Father, what an incredible joy to stand in your presence and to offer these gifts, and in fact, to offer these gifts as a simple representation of the offering of our lives. You own us. We are yours. We belong to you. You protect, you defend, you provide. And with this little bit of all that you've given to us, we ask that any number of others might come to hear, know, understand, and embrace the comfort, protection, and provision that we know in Christ. Use these gifts for the gospel's sake and for the sake of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Look with me at Romans chapter 13. And we're going to look uh, actually for a couple of weeks at these verses. I thought it was going to be one, but it's going to have to be two. Several of you have said, we're going to be done before you leave. I don't know, but we're going to try. We're going to try. So look with me at verse 8 of Romans chapter 13, and um, given what we've prayed, what we have confessed in reading through the law, what we know about ourselves, I hope and trust that you feel both the weight and the joy of what uh, is here in this passage. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, when we read this, we know that we need you. We ask you that you'd come and be among us first to instruct and to teach us. But Jesus, you know that information just isn't enough. Plenty of us have plenty of good information in our heads. What is needed is something that no bit of data can give us what is needed. It's the mighty operation of your Spirit in our lives, individually together as a church. So help us. Help us to understand, but then help us by your grace to move more in the direction of the things that are here, we ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Please be seated. I'll just add a quick uh, sort of exclamation point to Clayton's announcement. Um, I will never like you again if you don't come this evening. 
It's not true. But I really, really do want to encourage folks to come. There's, there's much that is very, very encouraging for you to know about. So uh, if you've never been to one of these things, please come. I mean that, seriously. Because there's some of you who've never been. I mean, that's okay. Free country and all that stuff. But please come, because this is important. And there's good stuff for you to hear and know about. All righty. Here's a funny thing. Um, And I say uh, funny because it's something that happens to me and it's something that has happened to you, um, I would guess, on multiple occasions. Uh, In preaching through Romans, and particularly in getting to Romans chapter 13, in reading, reflecting upon it, I become convicted a couple of things. You know what it is to be convicted about things. And one of them is the speed limit. Small thing, right? But... As I I pointed out three weeks ago, God posted a sign on Indian River Boulevard. God posted that sign that says speed limit 50 miles an hour. God says in, in Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities. He is the ultimate authority. There are penultimate authorities. Those penultimate authorities exist for your good and for mine. Ultimately, they exist for the good of the church and for the proliferation of the gospel. And I understand that some authorities look very, very evil and dark, and that's a whole different question. And when you encounter those authorities and those authorities require of you that you do something that is contrary to the mind and heart and will of God, you must object and you must oppose. I understand that. That's Acts chapter 5. That's John and Peter being told to shut up about the gospel, and John and Peter saying, we can't. We can't. So, do what you will. We have to keep preaching the gospel. Okay? Still, God posted that speed limit sign, and I've just become convicted about this. Now, it's a small thing to you, but it's, it's a kind of an important thing to me. So I'm doing my best to drive 50 miles an hour on Indian River Boulevard and to use my turn signal when I'm changing lanes and all of those other, other little things that are in the best interests of common society, right? Now here's the funny thing that happens. Happened earlier this week. I'm driving down Indian River Boulevard and some dude in a white car comes flying by me at 60 or 65 miles an hour, doesn't use his turn signal to indicate a lane change. And what happens to me? I become incensed. And then there's another thing that begins to happen. I become smug. I begin to become self-righteous. And then I hear this voice say to me, you are the man. You are the man. You tithe your dill and your mint and your cumin. And what about the weightier matters of the law? You content yourself with things that are important, but that don't go far enough. That's Phariseeism, my friends. That's Phariseeism. And you be one, and I be another. 
And where is Paul taking us? Paul, it seems to me, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the authority of Christ, is taking, to us, taking us to a place where we begin to ask questions like this. How do I view lawbreakers? How do I view lawbreakers? How do I view those who think and do things that in my judgment aren't right? In the church and outside the church. How do, what, is the, what is the disposition of my heart, my mind, my soul toward them? What's my heart orientation toward them? In chapter 14, Paul's going to deal with these kinds of things in the church. Those from whom, with whom I differ. He's going to talk about food. I mean, food is a big thing. Always has been. Always will be. Forever. Right? Jesus is going to spread a banqueting table. I don't know what eating is going to look like in the new heaven and the new earth, but I'm taking him at his word that there's going to be eating in the new heaven and the new earth. We're foodies. We're all foodies. They were foodies. Food's a big deal. Food is becoming a big issue for people, and it becomes a source of righteousness for people. It really does. It really does. And it was a problem in Paul's day, and people were making choices, and they were differing with one another in those choices. And the question is, how do I relate to someone who has professed faith in Christ, who makes a choice that is different from mine with respect to something like that? Maybe it's food, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's music, maybe it's movies, maybe it's what you can do on Sunday. How do I, how do I relate? How do I deal with them? That's where Paul wants us to go. He wants for us to think about that. But he also wants for us to think about it with respect to those who are outside the church. Outside the church. How do I live the Christian life down in the nitty-gritty, day-to-day stuff of life in the church, outside the church, with those from whom or with whom I differ? And what Paul is saying is that there is a law that applies universally. It applies universally. And it is the law of love. Look, it's a good and it's a right thing to obey the speed limit. But it doesn't go far enough. It is a good and it's a right thing for you to live out in the living of life your convictions because of your conscience. But the living out of those convictions doesn't go far enough. There is a higher law and it is the law of love. So, The next two weeks, I want to look at three things. I want to look at this higher law and what it is. I want to look at what sustains it. And I want to look at how it leads to a different way of living. A strikingly, stunningly different life. Higher law, a sustaining hope, and a different life. So first, a higher law. And let's just get the flow 
of where we have been and where we are. And I want to tell you why it is I do this. Why do you, Mike, I mean, you know, people sometimes get annoyed with me when I do all this review stuff. Um, and they remind me of the guy who said to his wife on her wedding day, I love you. And then 30 years later, she says to him, you never tell me you love me. And he said, I told you when we got married that I love you. I don't need to tell you anymore. Believe me then, you can believe me now. Right? Don't you, need, don't you need to have people's love communicated to you with words and, and deeds? Why do we do this review? I'll tell you why. Because it is very easy when you get on the other side of the indicatives of the gospel and begin to deal with the imperatives of the gospel to lose sight of the indicatives. And just to camp in the imperatives. Remember the difference between the indicatives and the imperatives? The indicatives tell us what God has done. That's what an indicative is. It indicates something. The indicatives of the gospel indicate what God has done. And I've said repeatedly, and I'll say it until the day I die, religions are about what I must do. Christianity is about what God has done. And it is all there. And that is why the 11 chapters that start this letter end in a doxology. Go back to 11, 32 and following. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? For from him and to him and through him are all things. Praised be God forever and ever and ever. Paul sings at the end of the indicatives. I love what we sang this morning. It's all about the indicatives. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. The power of the cross. Man, if you can't sing that stuff, it's like, It's like this football player was talking to some people in prison one time, and he said, if if this doesn't turn you on, you haven't got any switches. See, the indicatives are so magnificent and so glorious. You can't leave them behind. And it's all there. What has God done? He's done everything. He's done everything for you. And I mean everything. Don't add something to the everything. Don't say it's Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus alone. It is one big, glorious, overwhelmingly majestic package. You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. You need acceptance. You need sonship. You need innocence. You need new life. You need fellowship. You need hope. You need change. There is nothing you either need or long for that will not be found in Christ. Nothing. It's all there. And it's there freely given. And even the ability to receive it, the gift of faith, is in the package. He gives the gift of faith. The thing that needs to be exercised in order for you to receive all of these glorious blessings, privileges that are found in the gospel. Even the ability to believe God gives. So take it. It's free. Just take it. Just take it. What do you need? What do you need here today, right now? Cleansing? You come, you come unclean this morning? You need to be washed. It's there. The fountain. Jesus. 
try to wash yourself. Don't try to scrub yourself clean. You can't do it. Like Lady Macbeth, right? Out, damned spot. And it doesn't go away. And the doctor says, she needs a physic that I can't provide. She needs the gospel. You need cleansing. Take it. You need acceptance. Take it. It's free. You need hope. It's there. It's free. Romans 8.32 is, is kind of moving toward the end of those first 11 chapters. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely with him give us all things? That's it. Christ has it. Christ has done it. You take it freely. Isaiah 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Buy without price. Buy without money. It's free. Why do you spend your money For what is not bread and your labor, for what can never satisfy, it's madness. God through Isaiah is saying, it's madness. It's sheer insanity. Everything you need, everything you long for is in the gospel and it's free. Take it. Take it. There's this great story. Uh, I know the Ailes at least have heard this story because they know Sinclair Ferguson. I heard it from Sinclair Ferguson. The story of this old Scottish minister who had this woman in his church and she'd never take communion because she felt she was unworthy. Duh! And finally, on one occasion at communion, he thrust the cup into her face and said, Take it! It's for sinners! Who do you think this is for? This gospel. It's for sinners. And it's free. Free to you. Not free to the Son. The Son paid the price. And He paid the whole price. So that for you it might be free. What do you need? Take it. That's where Paul is through the first 11 chapters, and then you come to chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These transitional verses, these verses that are like the hinge, right? That connect the two halves of the epistle. First 11, indicatives, moving to the imperatives, but not before Paul spends this time, this little bit of time saying, this is how change comes. This is how change comes. How does what Christ has done become mine? It becomes mine by Christ. It becomes mine by Christ. The verbs in those two verses are all passive. They're all passive. Or they have a passive connotation. Present, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. That's an active verb. You're doing the presenting. But do you see the passive connotation of it? Paul says in in chapter 6, don't present your your members as instruments to sin. Don't present in that direction. Present in this direction. In what direction? In the direction of the one who's redeemed you, who loves you, who possesses everything that you need. 
Everything you need and everything you desire, it's all there. Present yourself to him. And the imagery in chapter 7 is the imagery of husband and wife. You had a bad husband. That husband was the law. That husband oppressed. That husband killed you. But you've got another husband who came and who fulfilled all of that. And he now possesses all righteousness and all life. Present yourself to him. Present yourself to him. Christian life is a dynamic life. It is a moment by moment by moment by moment presenting myself to Christ for what I need now. Now. Today. The more I think about this, the more convinced I am that union with Christ is the most beautiful and pivotal teaching in the whole of Scripture when it comes to living the Christian life. Union with Christ. By the Spirit's power, I am connected to the risen Christ. By the Spirit's agency, I am united to the risen Christ. Connected to Him. The Spirit is an umbilical cord connecting me to Jesus. And the life of Christ flows from him via the Spirit's agency to me. And I, the needy one, turn repeatedly, turn repeatedly in faith and say, give me this life, give me this fullness, give me this cleansing, give me this hope. What do I need? It's in Christ The Spirit has connected me to Christ. The Spirit is the spiritual umbilical cord by whose ministry, through whose agency, all of these realities flow to me. So I am presenting and I'm called to be transformed. That's a passive verb. By whom am I transformed? I'm transformed by Christ. And how am I transformed? I'm transformed by the renewing of my mind. And folks, that begins but does not end with rational, intellectual, reasoning capabilities, that side of me. It starts there. It does not end there. We talked about this weeks ago. When the biblical thinkers think about the mind, they think comprehensively. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Out of the heart are the issues of life. But it begins, folks, with the mind. It begins with your rational capabilities. It begins with the mental aspect. How does Christ transform me? How does he change my mind? Through his word in the midst of his church. Through his word in the midst of his church. said this Friday morning to the folks at the refuge, I am lousy when it comes to execution. I am absolutely committed as a Christian for more than 40 years to the systematic reading of the Scriptures. Why? Because my mind is like jello. And my mind needs the mold that the Scriptures are. And you lift that mold and my mind becomes watery and disordered and misshapen. I need. I'm a holy man. I need the scriptures. Tongue in cheek, right? You can laugh with me. 
I need the scriptures. Daily, 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 daily. Moment by moment and day after day and week in and week out. I need it. You need it. It is the means by which Christ transforms and changes, not in isolation, in the context, in the midst of the church, right? And I mean in corporate worship, and I mean in fellowship with other Christians, and I mean reading good Christian books. Look, you're going to be shaped by something. I have a friend who has friends who have read literally hundreds of sci-fi novels and watched Hours and hours and hours of sci-fi films. And these people actually believe that they are here. Aliens. They are here. They are among us. And they are controlling everything. Look, you read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sci-fi things. Read a few conspiracy theorists add a whole bunch of visual imagery from the sci-fi world, you'll become what you're taking in. You just will, folks. I'll say this about me. I won't say it about you. I will tell you one of the challenges of the Christian life. I want to be careful here. One of the challenges of the Christian life is that I am more American than I am Christian. I fear that. Why? It's where I live. Because it's what I see and what I'm exposed to. It's the, it's the brine that I've been pickled in for 63 years. I, I worry about it. You don't have to if you don't want to. I worry about it. We are what we take in. We, we will be what we take in. And God's desire and longing for us is that we be shaped and molded according to his word, the word which is Jesus Christ, Jesus which is given this written word, this printed word, and by which along with his spirit, he changes, reshapes and transforms us. And what is it that happens? Romans twelve twelve: The will of God begins to be seen. Imperfectly. Fits and starts, but it begins to be seen. Do this so that that which is good and acceptable and perfect, meaning whole and complete, might be put on display. That's the outcome of this. Something that is visible, seeable, noticeable. That's the outcome of this. The indicatives the fullness of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, everything I desire, everything I need, found in Christ. Christ changing me, transforming me, the Spirit, the agent of that transformation, employing the Word to an end the, and the sacraments and the other means of grace, employing these things for my transformation so that little by little over time, I start to smell differently and look differently. Right? Paul talks about the fragrance of the gospel, the aroma of the gospel, We are an aroma of the gospel. People smell, see, taste. Something, something begins to happen. And so here we are in these verses. And Paul is showing us in some detail what this Christian life looks like. What it looks like in the church and what it looks like out in the world. And it looks different. It looks different. 
And the higher thing, as good as it is, to honor those who should be honored, to pay your taxes, to obey the speed limit, to use your turn signal, as good as those things are, there is this higher thing, which is love. And verse 8 makes it very clear that this love is to be extended both within and without. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He uses two different phrases. There's, there's a nuance there, a slight difference of language. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love each other. Seems to me, a lot of the commentators agree that they're Paul speaking to us. Each other. Love each other. Press beyond those externals, those particulars of, of behavior and, and those things that become the basis upon which we accept each other. Press beyond those things to this higher love. To Well, Steve Winwood got it from the Bible, right? There must be a higher love, right? Press beyond that to this higher thing. Love one another. But then Paul says, the other, whoever loves the other, has fulfilled the law. Whoever loves another. And there it seems to me that Paul is suggesting that this love does extend beyond the church out into the world. And if we question whether or not Paul is thinking outside the church and out into the world. Look at what he says in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And what's in between? Well, it's verses nine, verse 9, these commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, they are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I'm going to talk about this more next week, but people ask. In fact, I have to, I have to answer a question about this because I'm transferring presbyteries and and the presbytery that's going to receive me wants to know that I'm not a heretic. So they're going to ask me a question about my understanding of the moral law and its applicability to us on this side of the cross. And the question is, does the moral law still abide? And I just, it scares me to death because I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong, right? But the way the question is sometimes phrased and the way the discussion goes, it's like the Old Testament law gets pitted against what is on this side of the cross. But as I read and listen to Jesus and what Jesus says about the law, he says that the whole of the law is summarized how? Love for God and love for neighbor. There's nothing abrogated there. There's nothing set aside there. My, this is what we'll talk about next week. My relationship to the law is most definitely changed because of Christ. But the law is the wisdom of God. The law expresses the heart of God. The law is not some freak control system. The law is an exhibition of his character. How could I not, now that I'm united to Christ... How could I not existentially, moment to moment, day to day, 
want to give expression to the beauty of the law, which is love. Which is love. You know as well as I do, and this will probably come up next week, that this love is not some saccharine, toothless, silly thing. You know where this law goes? There. To the cross. Taking very seriously commandments and the violation of them and the rightness of them and the tragic consequences that flow from the disobedience of them. This love goes to the cross. Love is a thing that is to be exhibited in the church and it's to extend out into the world as well. This is really challenging, friends. I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this earlier this week and continued to think about it through the week, there are two things that came to mind for me. Two things that came to mind. When, G, when Paul, Jesus through Paul, says... The whole of the law is summarized in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What comes to your mind? I'll tell you what comes to my mind. Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees and the parable of the Good Samaritan. They ask him the question. So who's my neighbor, big guy? You're so smart. Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that parable, speaking to an audience of people just like me, people driving down Indian River Boulevard, obeying the speed limit, using his turn signal, angry at people who break the law, Smug and self-righteous with respect to people who break the law. Jesus tells this scandalous parable and exalts the true righteousness of the Samaritan and exposes the ugly and deplorable self-righteousness of the religious people. You remember the story. Here's a Jew a Jew who's been beaten and left on the road. And Jews pass him by. They don't want to get contaminated. They don't want to get involved, whatever the deal is. And a Samaritan passes by, binds him up, takes him to a nice motel, covers all of the charges for him for as long as it takes for him to recuperate. And Jesus commends the Samaritan as being an exhibit of the love of God and the love which he incarnates and which he encourages. Here it is for us. I pass by a Republican who's fallen on hard times. Pass him by because his fingernails are dirty. Don't believe he really wants to work. Don't have time to get involved. And along comes 
a tatted, tank-topped, gothic, over-the-top, Michael Moore-loving Democrat who not only gives him a few bucks, but says, do you need a meal? And how about a place to stay? And how would you like to cut my grass? And Jesus says, which one loved his neighbor? And then there's 1 Corinthians 13. That's the other thing that comes to mind. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Man, I'm... I'm feeling the weight of this. My oldest daughter is taking this seriously. I'm incredibly proud and incredibly humbled. My oldest daughter has met a guy, a homeless man in his 40s named Anthony. Every time she goes to the Safeway, she looks for him. She saw him recently at Target. He was in her new spot. Now she's got two places. She goes regularly. She looks for him. She saw him just a week or so ago, opened her window, said, Anthony, how are you? And Anthony said, thank you. She didn't give him a nickel. She acknowledged his existence. Who's your neighbor? I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Ahmed at the 7-Eleven. Jesus. Who cuts your grass? Billy with the dreadlocks and his pants down around his thighs. So low he's got to hold them up with one hand as he walks down the street. Folks, you have to remember that it is precisely this love that you both received, needed, and also longed for. Jesus didn't save you because you were polite. Jesus didn't save you because you're liberal, politically, socially, or in any other way. Jesus didn't save you because you're moral or insightful. Jesus didn't save you because he agreed with your politics. Jesus didn't save you Because, because, because. Jesus loved you because you needed to be loved. Jesus saved you because you needed to be saved. And that kind of other-centered, indiscriminate love is the love that the apostle is talking about here the love of Jesus for those who both desperately need and deeply long to be loved. So we'll come back to this next week 
And we'll look at what it is that can possibly sustain a hope like this or a love like this. What can sustain a love like this? And folks, just to anticipate next week, it is the fact that the kingdom is present, that the new creation is already here and moving in the direction of its final and glorious consummation. It's here. You're citizens of the king. By virtue of union with Christ, you are participating in the resurrection. It's here. And Paul uses the metaphor of night and day to describe the arrival of the kingdom, the arrival of the new creation. He uses the word salvation. What can sustain you as you seek To love in this way, it's the reality of this very present hope. And what's the new life? What's the new life that gets put on? It's the life of Christ, the very life of Christ. Not some culturally acceptable moral code. Not some list of do's and don'ts that may have been best practices for somebody 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but are probably, for the most part, pretty irrelevant to folks today. The new life that gets put on is the very life of Jesus Christ, a life which he recreates in the lives of those who at some level been stunned and staggered by the magnificence of this glorious gospel and all that Jesus is. Everything I need, everything I long for. Let's pray together. Lord,